You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. From the 105.9 The Region Newsroom, this is Breaking News. It is 12.33. We are live on 105.9 The Region. This just into our newsroom. The WHO has declared a pandemic. From the 105.9 The Region Newsroom, this is Breaking News. That was audio from a live show here on 105.9 The Region about the rapidly spreading coronavirus. The date was March 11, 2020. Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, was in studio with me the moment the global pandemic was officially declared. He joins me now on the feed one year later. Dr. Kurji, thank you for being with us. You're most welcome, man. So what was your reaction when we announced the news just a little over a year ago? What went through your mind? There was a mix of emotions, and uh, uh, some of it was a little bit of confidence because we had experienced SARS before in Ontario, Uh, a little bit of disbelief, right? And uh, I knew that public health would need to lead this, you know, in the weeks and months ahead. Um, So, um, uh, you know, all these uh, mixed emotions. So in the weeks and months after the declaration, what did you do? How did you tackle this almost overwhelming pandemic? What was your day like? What were your days like? Our first reaction was really to throw everything at the first cases that we were seeing in order to slow down the spread. And, uh, you know, we have excellent staff in terms of, you know, the case and close management, et cetera. Um, but our health emergency operations center was already activated. And I take a lot of pride in the region's uh, pandemic uh, plan as such, or rather the all emergencies plan. And we have excellent staff. And we very quickly put together an online data portal as well uh, so as to be uh, transparent. What were the residents of York Region asking you at the very early uh, onset of, of the pandemic? What kinds of questions were they reaching out and asking you? I think at that time, uh, we were not very clear about public health guidelines because these were just developing. And so we were using whatever we, information we had that was science-based in order to communicate how they could keep themselves safe. Dr. Kurji, were you and was York Region Public Health prepared for the full impact of COVID-19? So in many ways, uh, I would say we were prepared. For example, the region had stockpile of PPEs um, for, and had maintained these for about 17 years, rotating this. Um, and we really helped out many long-term care homes and congregate uh, living uh, places, you know, with that PPE. We had inspected many of the long-term care homes. We have excellent staff. So we were actually prepared for any sort of disaster as such. However, you know, there were areas where we had to learn how to build a plane while flying, particularly in the areas of information systems, which became very important as we transitioned to working from home. 
there were many deaths, and there still are, from COVID-19. What does that mean to you, doctor? Well, I'm extremely uh, sad for for the numbers of deaths. However, um, when I look back, it's uh, been quite a miracle to actually have a vaccine in place. And uh, it's uh, just been a year since we had our first cases. And uh, we have already immunized uh, all of our long-term care homes and retirement homes. And uh, almost 50% of uh, folks over the age of 80 so that, I think, is something I would never, ever have predicted one year ago. And we go back in time again to this past year, lockdowns, stay-at-home orders. What a year it has been. It is one for the record books, and it will always be in our memories, whether it's good or bad, as we marched through this together. What were your thoughts, and what are they, on how the citizens of York Region handled everything that was thrown at them? Oh, I couldn't have expected more of the citizens of York Region. I think uh, they have been very compliant with public health guidelines. Unfortunately, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Nobody would have anticipated such long periods of lockdowns. Uh, It's been tough. It's been tough on all families. It's been tough on businesses. There's been social isolation, mental health issues. No question about it. But we can hope for better times ahead now. Let's analyze the the virus itself. It it is an entity unto itself, and now there are variants of it. So, as as a scientist, as a medical doctor, as a very learned individual, how do you look at COVID nineteen, the virus itself, and now it's the variants of it? What what do you what do you think about it? So, as always, this virus has always tried to outsmart us. It got into vulnerable populations, even despite our best defenses. Um, And again, it's trying to outsmart us by, you know, having changed its uh, ability to infect more of us through the variants. So, we have always uh, relied on data to guide us. And we keep on looking at the data every day very carefully And at this point in time, uh, we are not convinced that we'll see an explosion in the variants in York region. Um, However, you know, we urge the public really to continue taking all those precautions uh, because this virus is very smart. I'll say. Dr. Kurji, you have incredible experience in so many fields. You are highly educated. What has this global health crisis taught you? I think uh, it has taught us that uh, we cannot aim for perfection at all, right? And we have to rely on science, data, and evidence. And uh, again, unfortunately, any decisions we make will never please everyone. You're the medical officer of Health for York Region. You are a leader, and people look to you for as much information and for a a sense of peace and, and a sense of hope. Are there ever moments, and have there been in this past year, where you were scared, you were frightened by what was going on? When we first saw the variants of concern, I think in early January, I was concerned because I'd seen the experience in the UK and uh, was seeing things develop in France. However, when we uh, followed up on our data, you know, I became a lot more comfortable uh, that we weren't going to be seeing an explosion in cases. There are other moments that have, uh, you know, that will never be forgotten by me. Unfortunately, with a large number of our senior citizens lining up, you know, to out in the cold, that certainly is uh, an image that will forever stay with me.
And uh, we certainly apologize for those sorts of instances. And let's talk about the vaccines. You've touched on that. You also are giving us a vivid picture that we all have seen, and it's breaking our hearts. These Our seniors, our beloved seniors, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be where we are today in terms of this wonderful country, this democratic society that we enjoy and we embrace. But the vaccine, really, truly, for so many people, and perhaps for you as well, and, and York Region Public Health, what a turning point in this battle against the pandemic. Absolutely. The vaccine has been a turning point. Um, Until then, it was a question of us trying to have a really good case and close contact management and outbreak control measures, trying to keep things under control. However, we can look forward to a lot of optimism now. I think we we will be, as of uh, March 23rd, receiving lots more vaccine, and we'll be flying through all those priority groups. We have lots of plans for mass immunization clinics, and we're just working through a few issues, but I have every confidence that come the summer, we should hopefully have gotten over the bulk of this pandemic in York region. We must relay a message to the citizens of York Region, everyone who is listening to us right now on 105.9 The Region. Yes, if you get your vaccine you and vaccination, you are one step ahead, uh, hopefully, of the virus of COVID-19. But there are reminders of how we need to continue to stick to the guidelines. What are those reminders, Dr. Kurji? Well, the first thing is we are still far from having reached our targets for immunizations. So everybody needs to be really careful with respect to all these public health guidelines of distancing, you know, masking, you know, washing one's hands, you know, et cetera. And then even after you've received your vaccine doses, it is important for you to continue with these guidelines until such time as we start seeing the cases almost disappear. Are you surprised that at this stage of the vaccine rollout right across the country, in particular in our own backyard, that at this stage there is no vaccine protection, at least not that we're aware of, for young people, 18 and under, 16 and under, in terms of the the vaccinations, the vaccines that have been approved by Health Canada? Does that concern you? Uh, Yes, it does, because uh, I had actually hoped that uh, a vaccine for children would be developed much sooner. Uh, What I hear is that it may not be available until uh, next year, which uh, actually is very disappointing for me. Uh, That having been said, um, uh, children seem to be more resilient uh, to the harmful effects of the virus. And uh, I think with all the layers of protection we've built in with respect to the schools, we, we hope to be able to keep the situation under control. Dr. Kurja, you fought hard, long and hard, to have York Region go straight into the red control zone recently. Why did you work so hard to make that happen? You know, based on our data, it was really the right thing to do. And uh, we always have to look at the community as a whole. We have to balance the mental health issues, the social isolation issues, and the economic ruin that our businesses were facing together with the effects of COVID-19. And uh, there was, in fact, a growing underground economy that I was becoming aware of linked to disease transmission as well. And we have been experiencing downward trends in positive cases across all nine cities and towns and a reduction in new hospitalizations. And we also felt that we had the variance of concern under check. So it was the right thing to do. 
Dr. Kurji, what do you say to our frontline workers in York Region who have been doing incredible work uh, in terms of helping to uh, stop the spread, but also to save lives? They have done incredible work in terms of keeping society moving. And uh, I know they have borne uh, the brunt of this uh, COVID-19 cases, including the variant cases. Like we're seeing a very large proportion of the variants in the very workers, the essential workers. And I'm hoping that as soon as possible, as soon as we get through these highest uh, age groups, we can get to the essential workers in terms of the immunizations. How would you describe this past year? Oh, it's been a, a year like none other. I think uh, most of our staff and many other people as well are exhausted and uh, would like to see an end to this year, well, to an end to this pandemic. But it's been probably worse for many other people who have lost their livelihoods and many people who have lost their loved ones. And, uh, you know, my heart goes out to many of them. And what is your hope for the rest of 2021? I think we can look towards the rest of 2021 uh, with optimism, particularly after the summer months. Uh, General Hillier has a target of everybody receiving the first dose by before the beginning of summer, and we want to make sure that that happens. And with just the first dose of the Pfizer, uh, folks would get over 90% protection, as it were, after two weeks. So it's pretty high protection. And I think if we can spread the protection around the whole community, we will be way ahead in terms of conquering this pandemic. Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, thank you so much for your leadership, your guidance, and your caring. And thank everyone at York Region Public Health as well. Thanks for joining us on the feed just now. Thank you, uh, and You're most welcome, and take care. Well, the virus is taking a toll on long-term care facilities across this nation and right here in Ontario. Tina Cortez with an advocate for change. Vivian Stamatopoulos is a long-term care advocate and researcher. She is also associate professor at Ontario Tech University. Vivian, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Can you describe the situation in our long-term care homes at this point in the pandemic? Well, vaccinations have luckily reduced the mortality. So we're seeing the cases steadily decrease, which is good. But my concern and my concern has always been that um, vaccinations, people would assume the vaccinations meant it would solve all the problems that exist in long-term care. And while indeed it will decrease the COVID-19 mortality and the infections, it doesn't increase the long-standing issues that that really uh, the pandemic shone a light on. So things like understaffing, underinvestment in this sector, um, you know, the, the kinds of workers we have employed in this sector and how they've been treated, um, the kinds of care that are provided in this sector and how it has, you know, for long been um, underwhelming to say it lightly. Um, and, and these are structural issues that we need to deal with. And my concern is, is that focusing too much on vaccines as the, the new iron ring, I believe Minister Elliott said that herself in a press conference, uh, that that is going to detract from actually making the changes we need to, to improve the situation going forward. 
So how do we improve the situation going forward? What do we need to do? Increased personnel? Uh, what else yeah. needs to be done? Well, there's a lot of things. I think, you know, my approach has been twofold. I, in the interim of the longer standing issues we need to address, like, uh, you know, divesting from for-profit, because we have seen very painfully, uh, particularly in Ontario, the failure of this sector on the whole. When you look at the data, it is undeniable. They had the worst outbreaks and the highest mortalities and um, it, it's no coincidence that, you know, the class action lawsuits that have come against the homes have been disproportionately against the for-profit homes. I mean, they, they simply failed the COVID test, so to speak. Um, so divesting from for-profit uh, is going to be of significant importance going forward, frankly, um, because the, a business model should not be employed when it comes to the care of humans, plain and simple. And we know that based on our own universal health care, the, the superiority of, of that model, uh, which we know is more equitable, it's more cost-efficient, and it's safer compared to our privatized health care options to the South, you know, just look to the U.S. for that. Um, so we really need to actually learn and address the, the long-standing gaps in the Canada Health Act. That takes time, and we're aware of that. But in the interim, I want to see a set of national standards to really address the larger systemic issues, and not just in Ontario, but, but across Canada. So I've really been pushing to see uh, certain changes in um, staffing, changes in penalties, changes in the care standard and the kinds and, and types of care we provide um, in, in national regulations. So that is something that I think we need immediately while we're addressing some of the things that will take you know, years and possibly decades to, to change. You mentioned the mortality rate. More than 15,000 Canadians living in long-term care have died from COVID-19. How will our seniors, how will our families trust long-term care again? Will they return to long-term care? Hey, listen, there is no question. If there is one thing that was changed arguably the most, it is the public sentiment towards long-term care. People are terrified. People saw what happened they are very clear that they do not want for-profit. We have uh, recent polling data with Canadians that show 86% want uh, long-term care homes to be operated like hospitals and fall under the Canada Health Act, right? People saw that hospitals were protected because they had the resources and they were protected more fully under the Canada Health Act, while long-term care homes were completely left to, to uh, effectively fail on their own, which was what happened. And um, the public are scared, but unfortunately, the... the the sad truth is um, people don't have a choice when it comes to long-term care. We have over 38,000 people on a wait list in Ontario alone because we have an aging population. We have, you know, 10 million uh, Canadians are going to be 80 in just under five years. I mean, we need to address the, the silver tsunami, so to speak, that is coming our way. And right now governments have been successfully, or successively, so to speak, passing the buck from one government to the next because they don't want to tackle the very hard changes that Somebody has to tackle, or else we are going to be reliving these crises all over again in the next 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years when things get really bad. So how would you characterize, you brought up the government, how would you characterize their action and reaction? Well, when you look at Ontario, I mean, it was completely reactive. I, you know, time and time again, the reason why I had to become so vocal as an advocate is because our government was not proactively addressing the issues that were being brought to them. Um, we were warning for months ahead of the second wave, you need to do, uh, you need to engage in a staffing blitz like uh, Quebec did. You need to do X, Y, and Z. Implement the long-term care commissioner's uh, 
you know, recommendations and not one but two interim reports telling you you need to do these things in order to prevent having a more disastrous second wave. They didn't. And look what happened. We had a worse second wave than the first wave. That, that was predictable failure, right? So um, sadly, I, you know, a lot of this is political will. I don't understand why we don't have more political will to make the kinds of changes that are required. I'm definitely fighting as much as I can on my own, but I'm just one woman, so I need help. I need, this needs to be an election issue, and I need, and I really hope that it is, because if this is, without a doubt, the worst national crisis has been long-term care over this pandemic. There's no question. Nothing, everything pales in comparison to how badly we, we dealt this, um, you know, injustice to our seniors and, these, and, and persons with disabilities in these facilities. And um, I just really hope it is an election issue and we start seeing some change. But, I mean, unfortunately, if people in power don't want to implement the changes, <laughs> what can you do? Well, now you said it yourself that some of these changes take time. The Ontario government, for example, has introduced a tuition-free PSW program at some of our colleges. Is that not a step in the right direction? It's a step in the right direction partially, but here's the problem that our government doesn't seem to wrap its head around or, or just refuses not to acknowledge, that there are two main things that you have to address when it comes to staffing, right? You have to address the pay. And you have to address the working conditions. All this government did was throw pandemic, temporary pandemic uh, money in the terms of, you know, pandemic pay increases um, that expired, um, which only addressed half of the equation. The reason why you have a revolving door is that attracting them is one thing. Keeping them is an entirely different problem. And that's the problem that they're aware of, but would require more serious intervention to actually keep those workers in place. So you don't have a revolving door. And what that means is you have to implement a better care standard because right now they do not have the time to do their work efficiently. They are rushed between far too many residents that they have to help in one particular shift and they fail and they leave because it, you try working in conditions where you're, you're destined, you're designed to fail. You can't properly provide that care because there's no time to provide it. So there was a bill ahead of them, Bill 13, uh, the Time to Care Act, that would have legislated the care standard right now. Instead, they said they'll give it to us in the next five years. That's simply unacceptable. We need this now. And frankly, that four-hour care standard was something that was suggested over a decade ago. If you speak to those same experts who created that four-hour benchmark, they'll tell you right now it should be somewhere between five to seven because our residents have become all the more sick and require even more care in the last decade that has elapsed. And it will only increase as our Canadians and our Ontarians get older and older. So... You know, a dollar, what is it, a, dollar, a day late, a dollar short? This is where we're at. Do Ontarians have a choice? Where do they go from here? Where do they go? Well, unfortunately, I don't think people have a choice because the situation right now for, for individuals who, re who really require um, expensive assistance with the activities of daily living that require 24 hours, you know, seven days a week care, um, it's a different time today. We do not have the stay-at-home reserve army of female, remember, because this is very gendered, stay-at-home wives and mothers who provided this care for free in households, invisibilized that workforce, which is very difficult work, but for many reasons, for the fact that people can't afford to have 
you know, a single uh, earning household anymore. People have to go to work. And, and frankly, women want to work. And good, they should work if they want to, right? That, that, those gains came with the second wave of the women's movement. So, you know, the point is, is that we didn't, as a government, and not just this government, you know, this is the last 20 years, address the fact that women were going into the workforce for a variety of reasons, and we didn't have that very unfairly, unpaid uh, group of women doing this very difficult work with no training and which, which, you know, resulted in their own injuries and their own future instability financially. Um, we didn't address that. We didn't properly deal with home care. We didn't expand long-term care. We didn't provide the investments we should have into also things like childcare. And, and we put ourselves in this situation that we're in right now, where unfortunately people don't have a choice. You don't have people, um, available to provide that care in home. And, and home care right now, as it exists, is an even greater privatized mess than long-term care is. Can I ask you, how and why did this work start for you? Well, personal experience, I'll be honest. I mean, keep in mind, though, you know, in my, my education, my doctoral degree was at York University, and I was lucky enough to take courses and also uh, provide research assistant work for Pat Armstrong. And Dr. Pat Armstrong is... is hands down, the leading Canadian expert in long-term care. She's been researching this for almost three decades now. Um, and, and so I had that early experience working on her promising practices, which is a 10-year international study on long-term care. Um, so I had some familiarity there. I published in terms of staffing ratios that were absent back then, a decade ago, and how problematic it was. So, you know, the, the governments knew about this problem. This was not a secret. Um, but then I lost a grandmother just before the pandemic struck in long-term care, um, and it was the same issue. Home care was woefully inadequate. I tried to keep her at home as long as possible, I mean, going to the degree of moving into her condo so I could be close and be there and, and, and do what we do, what, unfortunately, majority women do. Um, but it got to a point where she needed, she was immobile, she needed 24-7 care, we couldn't lift her, we didn't have, you know, the technology in the house, like, lifts, um, it wasn't accessible, we didn't, we weren't given an option, we were just effectively told, this is a crisis, you need to put her in long-term care, pick your, you know, pick your top three and we're going to see where we can put her, and, and this is how families end up getting really forced into long-term care because there's no acceptable alternative. And it's a decision that every family dreads. And, um, and unfortunately, I saw the problems firsthand myself um, that plagued this system through my lived experience with my grandmother. And, and, and then when the pandemic struck a month later and the lockdown orders came, I knew how disastrous that would be for, for these residents because I knew how important family were to long-term care. They were there filling in the care gaps that existed. They were the ones there at every mealtime helping to feed these residents, to keep them sustained, um, to, to provide the extra, you know, memory cognition, memory stimulation, all of this important work that you need to do that, unfortunately, there is no funding, no sufficient funding for in the existing structure of long-term care. So I just started paying attention and, and, and advocating, really. Dr. Stamatopoulos, thank you for sharing your lived experience, your expertise, and your time with us. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Next on the feed, a local soccer player turned executive facing the battle of his life. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. March is MS Month. Jim Lang with a Canadian soccer star facing a devastating diagnosis. In case you don't know it, March is MS Awareness Month, and MS is something that affects a lot of people, even those men and women that appear to be in the best of health. And one of those is in Woodbridge, and he's a big shot, a VP of housing at Stateview Homes. He also was a wonderful soccer player back in the day. He's also an MS sufferer, and he joins us today in The Feed. Julian Ocello. Julian, how are you? I'm very good. How are you guys? Good, good, good. I mean, your soccer career, I look at the resume, it's hard to believe that someone from here in York region could have had the soccer career you did from Richmond Hill to Thornhill to Kleinberg Nobleton to places like the AC Milan, Manchester United. Um, we're talking about some of the bigger soccer clubs on the planet. Yeah, you know what? Um, I think it's every child's dream to... Uh, to be able to play for, in fact, two of the richest companies, uh, sorry, companies, two of the richest uh, clubs in the world. Um, I mean, at 14 years old, you, you know, you have the choices of you know, going scholarship route or going in the professional route. And I'm pretty sure that every single kid at that age would have chosen the professional route, especially when you have a club like AC Milan behind you saying they want you and they want to sign you. Now, you uh, had a trial, the Bolton Wanderers, uh, the Premier League. You've been yeah. so, so it looked like you, you had a career in soccer mapped out for you, by the most part. W was there any indication at all, w w I mean, being an elite athlete you are, and spending all that cardiovascular running at this level and scoring all those goals for these different teams, that there was any possibility you'd ever have a health issue coming up, Julian? You know what? There was, um, considering that from the, ages, from the age of eight, Till, uh, till when I was diagnosed, I trained multiple, multiple, multiple times a day. Uh, there has never been a hint of, uh, of an illness. Um, you know, especially when you're, when you're working that hard and you're bringing your body to those levels, there was never anything that I did that I, you know, that made me think, hey, you know, something's wrong. Uh, it's sort of just like I've always said, woke up one morning and that was it. <laughs> So a blink of an eye. Really? So literally you woke up and said something's not right and you went to the doctor? Yeah, I woke up one morning um, with my right arm completely numb and burning sensation. Literally, I woke up. I woke up. I had fallen asleep on the couch that one night and woke up and that was it. Wow. Now you're the VP for housing for Stateview Homes, a very important job. But more importantly to me is you're coaching the under-15 Woodbridge Strikers. And if I'm a parent and someone like you is coaching my child, especially their resume, this is like winning the lottery for a kids who, just to get to that important next level of football, soccer, to have someone like you guiding them. Uh, yeah, you know what? It's, um, it's nice. First of all, it's nice to be able to train uh, kids that, that you hope to that you hope that they can even see one percent of what you've experienced in the soccer world. As much as it uh, teaches you as a person to become a man faster, um, it also helps you throughout your life, which is amazing. Um, parents obviously are very appreciative that uh, I've gone through what I've gone through, and even more the kids when they look at you and you know, they, it's like they listen more. Uh, they're able to accept things that you say because they obviously know that you know what you're talking about. 
Um, coaching that team, I mean, we got to number one nationally, which is unbelievable. Uh, winning a charity shield, which is, in my opinion, one of the hardest uh, um, cups to win for that age group. Um, just a great group of kids that you know that that never give up, just as much as I did. I, I saw myself in them, which is what kept me going. It's amazing to see that, Julian, because I know a lot of my friends who are coaching boys or girls, soccer, hockey, volleyball, you name the sport, and the toughest thing with this kids 13, 15, 16 in that age group is getting them to buy in because you're almost like a salesperson more than a coach because if they don't believe it, they're not going to follow you. I agree. And the problem nowadays is that there's, um, you know, the as much as, you know, whether it's for guys or for girls, you know, there's there's friends. Uh, and there's phones, and there's internet, and there's Snapchat, and there's all these things that are a distraction. Whereas when I was growing up, you know, internet was on dial tone. Uh, yeah. Pick up the phone, you got disconnected. That's right. It was there was no FaceTime, so when you were away, you were away. You know, you couldn't just call mommy and daddy. Nowadays, these kids have it at their fingertips. You know, they're away. They could just FaceTime and see mommy and daddy if they wanted. It's not a big deal. Whereas back then, it was, hey, you're on your own. <laughs> Uh, unbelievable. Speaking with Julian Uccello, who's the uh, coach of the Woodbridge Strikers Under-15 team, a VP of Housing for State View Homes, uh, a long football career slash soccer career around the world, and almost uh, an MS uh, sufferer and survivor and uh, dealing with it. Before we get to MS Awareness Month, talk about your football career when you went overseas and playing elite soccer in Ontario, in southern Ontario, in Canada, what was the, the transition? How different of a leap was it to go overseas and play elite-level soccer there, Julian? Um, you know what? I think it's the, the, the difference, the main difference is obviously when you're in Europe, they live, they breathe, they eat, they drink. They, you know, all it is is for soccer. Uh, whereas, as I mentioned uh, previously, you know, kids at that age aren't worried about friends and going out. They're worried about building a career for themselves. And then when you're growing up in Europe, um, when I was with AC Milan, you're playing against players that, you know, are making millions and millions and millions of dollars, and you look at them as their as, as an idol. Um, but when you talk to them, they're not the stuck-up type athlete. They're always there to help you out as well, uh, which was unbelievable to see because, you know, people look at, let's say, an actor or they look at you know, an athlete, they'd look at them as, oh, they're different. You know, I'm, I'm afraid to go talk to them because what, because they have money or they're good at what they do. No, that's not there. It's you're, everyone is in the same boat. You all are trying to get to the same goal. And whether you're, you know, making millions of dollars, they don't look at it as I'm, I'm making millions of dollars because they score 10 goals next year. Well, they didn't do good enough and they always want to improve, which is exactly what the youth want to do there as well. It's amazing. I know along your football journey, you spent some time in Savona. Now, I know this because a few years ago, my family and I, my wife and kids, we were on a vacation. And we spent a couple of days in Savona. It's the hidden gem of Italy on the Riviera. What was your experience like playing yeah. there? Um, well, obviously, the experience there was great. Uh, the group of fans is, un- is unbelievable. Uh, the, the historic club. Um, you know, the, being my, that was my, after AC Milan, I'd gone to Savona, which was my second uh, team that I'd gone there. Um, the level of even respect that you were a foreigner, uh, you know, the city, the club, uh, the president, everyone was so welcoming, even though you were Canadian and you weren't one of them, because that's, in my opinion, one of the hardest things too, is um, having to move to a different country and not knowing a language, uh, you know, zero and having to learn it, to read it, to write it, to do all that on your own, um, they actually respect you a lot more for doing that. 
24 goals and 32 appearances. That's pretty incredible. You, you, they must have liked that as well, Julian. Yeah. yeah, that's one thing I was known for. The fans, obviously, um, I was very close to every group of fans that I'd, uh, that I'd played with, you know, every club that I was with. I was always the, the fan person um, because I realized that if the fans like you, you're always playing. The fans don't like you, you ain't playing. So I was always making them happy on the field and always having that will and that hunger to go out there and please them uh, because at the end of the day, they're paying to see you play. So, you know, like everyone says, it's something that uh, um, you pay for entertainment. So you have to be an entertainer on the field um, so that people kept coming and kept speaking about you. Obviously, March is MS Awareness Month. What does that mean to you? How do you get the word out to everyone listening right now, what they can do to help? Um, well, MS is obviously, as you know, it's, a very, it's, a, it's an illness that, uh, uh, that there's no cure for. Um, you know, it does progress over time, and there is... Uh, a big uh, a lack of, of research because of the fact that the funds aren't there uh, and it's just the unknowns. Um, you know, uh, right now for uh, MS, um, I'm, a, I'm a lead ambassador for um, uh, an organization that uh, all the money that we do, um, we do pick up in donations, we do give to the John Hopkins Hospital, uh, which is one of the biggest research centers in the world. And, I mean, all I know is that MS is, it's hard because there is no end. Um, and as much as it's, someone might look at it as, oh, it's just MS, you just have a neurological problem, or, you know, you do see someone that, you know, does have MS, they're struggling just as, as much as, a, as any other illness. So it's not known throughout the world, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, as much as, let's say, cancer or, you know, Parkinson's or uh, any other illnesses, but it is something that there is, you know, over two and a half million people are struggling with. And if there's anything or if there's anyone that, that you know, that people do know that do have MS, um, I can promise you that as much as they say they don't want a hand or they don't want help or they don't want to just a hello, you know, how you feeling, they definitely do. Because uh, one of the main things is obviously, you know, the depression and everything that comes with it, which is very, very hard to deal with. Just real quick, how much is coaching and your family and friends helping you deal with any potential depression dealing with MS? Um, you know what? Seeing the, the smiles on the kids' faces, um, obviously because the depression of, of having obviously a career of a professional athlete um, and then it being shut down due to MS, um, there was, there's a lot of depression that goes on with, you know, with the idea of coaching and, the, and not being able to walk and having to use a cane. Um, you think people look at you differently. Um, so it's very hard, um, but I do have to say, you know, family-wise, uh, friends-wise, and, and soccer-wise, I couldn't ask for anything more because at the end of the day, they're always wanting to help out, even though I'm not asking for help, which is unbelievable. I can say this with all honesty. The Woodbridge Strikers under-15 team is a good hands. Julian, you're a good man. Thank you. Continued success, uh, good health, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with us, and uh, all the best in the future. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. Take care, Julian. Take care. Bye-bye. Since the pandemic was declared, we have relied on technology more than ever, including our kids. Karen Johnson with the Tech Effects. 
This is a time of change, challenge, and uncertainty, according to my next guest, not only for adults, but for kids as well. Screen time and associated risks are skyrocketing. Dr. Shimmy Kang is a Harvard-trained doctor, researcher, media expert, best-selling author, speaker, wife, and a mom of three. She joins us on the feed to talk about her latest book, The Tech Solution, Creating Healthy Habits for Kids Growing Up in a digital world. A good day to you, Dr. Kang. How are you? Good morning, Karen. I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. You know, it's been quite a year for everyone uh, really turning online, either for work or for school. Is this what triggered your latest book? You know, um, it's interesting because I wrote the book before the pandemic. Of course, no one knew it was coming. Um, I What really triggered it was um, my perspective as a mother of three kids and as a psychiatrist that really has spent a lifetime learning about the human brain, especially impacts of our environment during crucial times of development. And, you know, I was just, um, I needed to know more about how technology was impacting my kids' brains, my brain, um, my patients, people around me. Uh, It was such an everyday part of life. I needed tech. I used it. I saw the amazing power and benefits of it. But I also was in tune and in, in seeing the downsides as an addiction psychiatrist. My currency is something called dopamine or the reward pleasure system. And um, that is a uh, really tied into this topic of technology because it's in something called the persuasive design. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all of that really um, is what made me uh, look and do the research for the book, The Tech Solution. How is it possible, though, Dr. Kang, to, to have that healthy balance of tech with everything from school, music, dance classes, athletic practices, even socializing, everything is online. How do you balance that? Right, right, right. And I totally get it because I'm in it too. So, you know, what I thought was important, and, and I like to kind of use metaphor because human, the human brain loves stories and metaphor. And, um, and in the dolphin parent, I use the metaphor of the dolphin to describe, um, you know, a positive parenting style. So when it came to tech, I, I needed something to hold on to, something familiar that parents knew and teachers knew. Um, and so I picked the metaphor of a diet, and I said, look, we teach children that food comes in different categories. It comes in healthy food, junk food, and toxic food. And we start young, and we have the repetitive message. So let's do the same with technology consumption, because the tech we consume impacts our bodies and mind the same way as food. So there is healthy tech. This is tech that leads to creativity and learning, tech that leads to connection, um, you know, video conferencing and Zoom calls and seeing and looking at each other and building community and activism and social bonding, and tech that leads to self-care. So mindfulness apps and exercise and Fitbits and so many positive, positive aspects for tech. And you want to guide children to consume that. Mm-hmm. You want to tell them to limit and monitor the junk tech, like junk food. You know, a little bit of chips and pops <laughs> on a that Friday is okay, Absolutely. just like junk food. Mm-hmm. Um, and scrolling Instagram, you know, and zoning out with a video game, a little bit's not not going to kill you, but not too much. And then there's the toxic tech. Avoid the hate, the bullying, the cyberbullying, the comparisons, the fear of missing out, um, prolonged sitting and sleep deprivation. That's toxic tech. Just avoid that. So what are the risks, though, associated with having too much tech 
on our plates? What can, what are some of the signs and what can we look for? Yeah. So, you know, right now, um, the science is very clear. Uh, we have causation. Okay. Not, uh, sorry, we have links of causation, not direct cause. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the human brain is very complex and there's never, it's not A plus B equals C, but we know that there is a um, impact with technology and screen time to things like anxiety, depression, body image disturbance. Now, of course, gender is not binary, but we're seeing higher rates of body image issues among young girls and women and perfectionism connected to PAC. We're seeing increased rates of loneliness and social skills deficits, including empathy. Uh, we're seeing blue light impact on rhythms of our sleep and appetite um, and uh, a whole across the board. So we're seeing impacts on our physical health, our, bio our psychological health, our social health with loneliness, which is very, very toxic Absolutely. Um, even now in the pandemic. So mm -hmm. it is across the board and, and tech um, is linked to those things. So what I find really interesting is that, you know, we, we know it, we, we follow the actions, we can see it. But we really don't know what, how to do and, and create healthier um, uh, habits, especially even for kids and for grown-ups too in this whole digital world. Could you shed some light for us on this just a little bit for us? Because apparently we don't know how to do this on our own. Right, right, Karen. And I know you're a mom too, and it is so hard, <laughs> and it's everywhere, and we're all stressed and busy, and now we have a pandemic, and exactly. oh my God. So what we do know, so just like we teach kids how to eat, we can do the same paradigm for tech. So mm -hmm. start early, have, uh, be firm but flexible, right? Apply that dolphin approach of firm strength in your um, values and what's important to you as a family. So, you know, no phones at mealtime, no phones in bed, um, screen-free, you know, time in the car, uh, delay, um, you know, the introduction of the sugar, right? The, the junk tech as long as you can. Uh, teach your kids to avoid the toxic tech um, and tell them what it is, uh, comparing your life to others, fear of missing out, hate. So just the same paradigm. And just like food, we have to do it again and again and again. It's not one conversation. Right. Just like food, you know, as teens, they're going to take more risks and, and fall off. And, you know, and you can't control it all the time. Yes, they're going to eat more junk food at other people's houses. Same with tech. We can't blame the world. Just keep it consistent in your own home um, and really guide your children towards healthy tech consumption. And have these conversations. My own sons, when we talked about this a couple summers ago, uh, it was the summer of Fortnite, and they told me <laughs> Fortnite was like nachos. They said, look, mom, it's it is social and we laugh with our friends um, and it's better than, you know, first-person shooter games. They recognized that it was positive some of parts, course, yeah. but they also recognized it was addictive for them and they kept thinking about it. Um, so anyway, on that note, we we moved and my sons play sports, video games. They love it, NBA, FIFA, whatever, uh, with their friends. And that's the health, um, and, those are the healthy things that goes. you were talking about as well earlier. These are some of the healthier, um, you know, on online things that we could be doing to improve. So it's Exactly. Sounds Exactly. Yeah. Healthy, you know, social connection, self-care, and that creativity and learning. Absolutely. I know many of our listeners would like to continue this conversation with you uh, on air. And how can they tune in to see you? Because I, I understand that you've actually started a YouTube channel. Right. So I'm hoping to contribute to the healthy tech out there. And trust me, Karen, it wasn't easy. Um, you know, as a mom, <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm not even doing oh, I hear you. cameras. But mm -hmm. I started a YouTube channel. It's called Mental Wealth. 
with Dr. Shimmy Kang, and I have short videos um, about these topics. I have mm-hmm. videos on healthy tech, junk tech, perfectionism, anxiety, coping skills. I'm hoping it'll help young people because that's where they're living a lot online, you know, and they're all free and, and we're using them in schools and hospitals. And, and so, yeah, definitely feel free. Um, and you can link to all that through my website, drshimmykang.com. Well, I want to share also with our viewers, I am currently reading The Tech Solution. I had The Dolphin Way, and now actually my, my eldest son is also reading with me The Tech Solution. Where is the latest book available, Dr. King? Oh, that's so great. Uh, thanks for, uh, I'd love to know his thoughts. Um, my son's stories are in the book, too, because yes. my son, my oldest son has ADHD, um, and he really needs tech um, for school, but he also understands he's more at risk for um, distraction and attention issues. So, uh, yeah, let me know what your son thinks. My book is available anywhere books are sold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Amazon, local bookstores. I love promoting, um, you know, local Canadian bookstores. So anywhere books are sold, you can find The Tech Solution. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Shimmy Kang, author of The Tech Solution and The Dolphin Way. Thank you again for joining us on The Feed. Thank you, Karen, and for your great work and all of media right now in this pandemic. We really need um, your hard work and voices. I know this isn't easy on all of you, but I'm very grateful. I appreciate it. Thank you again. We'll talk soon. She shoots, she saves. That's next on The Feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Tina Cortez is next with a local girls hockey league raising funds to save lives. Let me introduce you to Trish Murphy. She is a hockey mom and, of course, so much more. Trish, welcome to the feed. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having me. Okay, so tell me about your work with the Central York Girls Hockey League. Yes. So uh, my daughter started playing with uh, the CYGHA about four years ago in the House League division, and uh, I kind of got the bug and became a hockey mom and wanted to get a little bit more involved with the association. Um, and that's kind of how I started um, working with um, some of my colleagues at the CYGHA. And is your daughter still playing hockey? She is, yes. She is still playing hockey. I mean, like everybody this year, missing uh, the real hockey season. Um, but yes, she is definitely playing hockey still. And where did this love of the game come from for you? Uh, actually, through my daughter. I uh, did not know much about hockey before at all. And um totally immersed myself and became one of those hockey moms that we all love um, and just got behind my daughter and uh, her love of hockey and the sense of team and the Central York Girls Hockey Association, just the amazing people that it has in that um, association as far as volunteers and coaches. And um, I I just really wanted to be a part of this amazing association. That's terrific. So tell us about She Shoots, She Saves. 
Yes, so She Shoots, She Saves um, is a tongue twister, but <laughs> came from an initiative last year that the Orange Crush Pee Wee House League girls did uh, to bring awareness to cardiac arrest and the importance of public defibrillators um, in the community. And the girls raised money and were able to place two outdoor save stations in our community. There's one down um, at Riverwalk Commons in Newmarket, right outside the outdoor rink there and then one at town park in aurora on the side of the building by the splash pad so rachel gillis was uh, an aurora panther and uh, she was timekeeping one of her dad's uh, hockey games uh, and the goalie went into cardiac arrest during this uh, men's league game Rachel knew how to do CPR, and she did CPR on this gentleman, used an AED, and was able to save his life. So the Pee Wee Orange Crush initiative was um, sort of inspired by her to bring awareness of cardiac arrest and uh, the importance of community AEDs into the community. The uh, girls were able to raise enough money to place two outdoor safe stations, one in Newmarket at Riverwalk Commons and then one in Aurora at Town Park. The She Shoots, She Saves initiative is stemmed then from this. Um, the initial and I think main goal of the She Shoots, She Saves is to really bring a sense of community and love of hockey back to the girls in the Central York Girls Association. For everybody this year, hockey has been not really hockey, and um, girls have missed hockey, parents have missed hockey. Uh, so this initiative was just um, a way to kind of bring, as a league, bring everybody together, um, remember the love of hockey we all have, and then in turn uh, be able to do something positive for our community. So the she, shoot, she Shoots, She Saves, the girls are encouraged to register with an app called Hockey Share. And for the time period of March 13th to March 27th, they track their shots that they do on a daily basis uh, through this Hockey Share app. And then uh, through this Hockey Share app, they're able to improve their skills. They're able to, um, again, get the excited about hockey. Then the second part of this is to for the girls that are able to raise money for their pledges. So get pledges for how many shots they can take. Um, and then that the pledges are through a crowdfunding platform. And then we have set a goal to raise $20,000 to put two more save stations in our York Region community. So it's been a lot of fun putting it together and um, just bringing girls together. The CYGHA um, Association has been very generous in offering two $500 prizes for girls who just register. So it's not nothing to do with pledging or funding, but just registering for the Hockey Share program and apt to get involved in hockey, practice your shots. Um, the top shot <laughs> will then win um, $500 to be put towards their uh, next year's hockey registration. It sounds like a win-win. Such a terrific initiative. Do you know where the save stations will be placed this year? We don't uh, yet. So again, we're just uh, waiting to see how much money we are able to raise. 
um, our local mayors have been so supportive. So Newmarket, Aurora, um, East Glowenberry, they've been very, very supportive of this project, um, as well as some amazing female hockey players. Angela James has been supporting us. Laura Stacy has been supporting us. Carly Jackson has been supporting us. Rebecca Vint. So it's been um, a really fun project to put together, but yes, not um, anything solid yet until we kind of know um, where we stand with our fundraising. Okay, so Trish, one more time, if our listeners want more information, want to donate, where can they find it? Oh, that would be so appreciated. Yes, they can follow us on Instagram. So most of this is obviously generated through uh, social media because of COVID. So they can, our Instagram handle is at C-Y-G-H-A official. They can follow us on Facebook uh, at C-Y-G-H-A or they can go to savestation.ca and go to crowdfunding and follow our campaign there and make a donation uh, to help us place some more defibrillators in the community. Great cause. Good luck. Keep us posted. Oh, thanks so much, Tina. Really appreciate it. Go Panthers! If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.